Welcome to Older Women Live. I'm Rosemary Wallin. Older Women Live features women's voices from across the globe and revisits over a decade of interviews I've done with a variety of people involved in social justice issues. This series provides background to contemporary issues like age, race, gender and the impact of globalisation on women's lives. This episode features conversations with Cherry Smiley and Sheila Jeffries about sex work and its negative impact on women. Cherry is an Indigenous feminist activist from the Thompson Navajo Nations and a PhD student at Concordia, who is bringing attention to the devastating impact of sex work on Aboriginal women and girls. Sheila Jeffries is a retired academic and radical feminist, originally from the UK. I talked to Cherry on air on Older Women Live in the fall of 2015. So I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are on uh, Mohawk uh, territories. Yes, indeed. Um, and to um, acknowledge the Mohawk people as the caretakers of these lands. Um, and to thank you uh, for letting me be here and be part of this discussion. I think it's a wonderful um, opportunity for me to uh, learn and, and share um, with uh, with you amazing women here. Um, so I am from BC. I'm Teklatmuk Thompson um, and Diné, or Navajo from those nations and um, I've worked I think it for the last um, seven or eight years in Vancouver at a, a rape crisis center and transition house um, and have done a lot of organizing with um, indigenous women um, and and girls in Vancouver um, so I started out actually being mentored by a number of um, amazing amazing powerhouse um, indigenous women in Vancouver who had been very active for a long time um, and really the uh how i came to um focus on the issue of prostitution it was something that never really sat right with me this idea of sex work or uh um that that it's something that women choose that it's something that women that is empowering for women it never really i never really fully bought into that argument but i couldn't quite articulate when i was younger what was wrong with with that argument. Mm -hmm. So it was actually around the 2010 Winter Games in Vancouver um, is how I kind of came into this issue. What was going on at the time is there was a call for co-op brothels at the time. Uh, and there was certain people in Vancouver saying that this would benefit um, Aboriginal women. So there was a, a really awesome gang of Aboriginal women in Vancouver who came out saying, not, not in our name are you going to uh, come up with co-op brothels? Um, this is not <laughs> what we want for our communities. This is not what we want for our, our girls. This is not how we want our men and boys to be treating our women and girls. And so that's kind of how uh, it, it was the kind of controversy um, and all of the attention around that issue that kind of led me into, uh, into focusing on prostitution. And prostitution really is, I think, this site where it's, so obvious that the the race and the class and gender inequalities collide. So I, I don't think you can look at prostitution or at um, other types of um, violence in the sex industry, like you know stripping, webcams, those types of things. Um, you can't look at that 
and say, wow, we really live in an equal society. It's, it's totally um, contradictory to each other. So I think, of course, we want better for prostituted women. We want better for women in general, especially indigenous women and girls. But we want, uh, you know, uh, so, so it's both, both a focus on the, on the sex industry, but bigger than that at the same time. So looking for, um, you know, liberation for, for all women. So not, not just here in Canada, but women, you know, overseas, women in Africa, women in the Philippines, women everywhere. And when we look at prostitution, we really do need to be looking at this as a global issue. Yes, yeah, so you've, you've got the kind of feminism that we would share, which is what we call a we feminism, not a me feminism. You're interested, we're interested in the whole collective quality of life for women. Yes, I think it's really unfortunate that a lot of younger uh, feminists tend to look at second wave feminism and automatically dismiss dismiss that. I think it's straight up wrong. <laughs> um, and I think it's a an example of the unfortunate ways that uh, white white women, uh, neoliberalism has really, as you said, come into our culture where it's me, 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 I, 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 um, and an automatic dismissal of, of what old women are saying, what's, what's uh, the second wave ideology. And I think, I believe that the, the second wave, um, I think they got it right. I think they didn't go far enough, mm-hmm. um, but I think we're moving along now and there are younger women that are furthering that analysis, I think the core of the analysis was, was correct. Um, and so I think it's, 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 um, it's, it's uh, not helpful to just automatically dismiss uh, second wave feminism. Cause it was, you know, <laughs> sometimes I feel like I was born in the wrong, uh, in the wrong <laughs> decade or the, <laughs> the wrong time. Cause there was, there was so much courage, right? And, and I, it takes courage, I think, to be a feminist now, and it took courage to be a feminist then. Well, I think there was courage, but there was also a certain innocence to us. It was obvious that prostitution was harmful to women. You know, I know that you, you, were, you were saying before that you, were, that you were raised with certain traditional values. What do these native communities, or what does your native community say about prostitution? Because here they say, oh, well, it's here to stay. You know, it's the oldest profession that there is on earth, and there's nothing much we can do about it except improve the lot of the individual prostitutes. So I um, was raised uh, largely by my maternal grandmother, yes. um, who is... An amazing she's one of my she's probably my favorite person definitely one of my favorite people in the world and I've talked to her about prostitution and I asked her one day what the word is is there a word in our language and uh, for prostitution and uh, and she had to think really hard about it and and she said no no there's there's no there's no word that describes that um, and I have actually yet to come across um, an indigenous uh, nation in Canada that has a word for prostitution in in their lexicon. This is because um, the teachings that that I've received um, from my elders have told me that prostitution um, wasn't a traditional practice uh, pre-invasion or (laughs) pre-contact, however you want to 
um, describe that. Um, and that, that uh, and, and that's because prostitution fundamentally relies on really systemic inequalities. So it's not to say that exactly. things were perfect pre, you know, pre uh, white people in Canada, because they weren't. But the systemic um, issues that we're dealing with now, the poverty, the racism, um, you know, homelessness, uh, addiction to, to drugs and alcohol, um, violence, all of these things that are so ingrained in our, in our society, in our culture, did not exist pre, uh, pre-invasion. So women didn't need to engage in prostitution, and men at the time valued women. They respected women and girls. Women had leadership roles. Um, so men didn't think it wasn't socially acceptable for men to go and force a woman to uh, engage uh, in uh, a sexual act with him. So I think uh, when we hear it's the oldest profession, that's a total whitewashing of really complex Indigenous histories where prostitution didn't exist. And, and really, if we, if we think about it in that sense, prostitution has only existed in Canada for a couple hundred years. Um, so, you know, to, to think that we could abolish it is not, you know, it's only it's only been here for a little while. Yes. So you, what, what what you're saying, Cherry, is then that the way in which the people live, what do we call euphemistically, the lifestyles that they had in the pre-invasion period, there would have been much more collaboration between the men and the women. So there would have been much more equality in those cultures. Definitely. Um, Definitely a, a, a much uh, better sense of that, better sense of respect, of valuing each other as, as fully human. And the ideologies, right, that, um, that I've been taught that form the foundation is that we um, culture that you talked about. So yeah. it's not just about, am I okay? It's, are we okay? Yeah. Um, and I think if you start from that point where you're not just looking at yourself um, and, uh, you know, making sure that you're okay and, well, you know, then you know, too bad for, for the rest of you. If you start from that, that foundation, prostitution doesn't make sense <laughs> because, you know, you're, you're looking out for each other, you're taking care of each other, um, and you're really trying to, to do as little harm as possible. And that's to, you know, the women and girls, that's to the, the earth, to the land, you know, to the skies, to the waters. All of those things uh, we see as fundamentally interconnected. Um, and prostitution forces a disconnect on women who are in prostitution have to disconnect from their physical bodies from their their selves it causes so much damage while women are in prostitution and after they get out of prostitution and it limits men it doesn't harm men at all but it limits men to a version of masculinity that's violent and dominant um, and aggressive so I think the abolitionist position where we're imagining that men can choose differently is actually very hopeful and sees that men can change, men can adopt a new version of masculinity, um, men can be kind and loving and caring and gentle and all of these wonderful things that we know they're capable of. And I, so it's a, a very fundamentally hopeful position and a, and a, a return. It's not um, something that's, it's not looking towards a new um, version of the world, it's returning to these values, to these we values, to, to the ideas of collectivity and um, interconnectedness. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a return. Yeah, it's, it's a very, uh, it's at the same time really a, a humanistic approach and one that's very anti-capitalist. It's not, you know, each person for themselves and competition and violence, as you say.
what's the difference between sex work and prostitution? You know, there's this whole thing about language, isn't there? You know, when, the, when they call uh, working as a soldier, they say, well, it's just a job to do. Just to, I'm just doing my job. Are these jobs, you know, like in the military or prostituting yourself, are these jobs in the same way? And what do we mean when we're talking about sex work, the difference between that and prostitution? So language, language is really, really important. I think language so. really helps shape our ideas, um, helps us to communicate. So it's a really Im- important point. And I think, unfortunately, the, the popular media has really picked up, um, and, and academia as well has really picked up um, using this, this terminology of sex work uh, when, when, they're, when they're talking about prostitution. And the danger with using sex work is that it frames prostitution as a form of labor and yes. a, as a as a form of, of socially acceptable labor and it really hides purposefully hides um the the inequalities right so when you hear sex work it's degendered there's no mention of of uh, race it really hides the reality of prostitution for women and, and presents it like a, 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 as if it's a job like any other job, like working at McDonald's or, or as you mentioned, working in the military. Um, so it really it frames it as something that, that is acceptable, um, that we should, uh, that, that we can't critique. I think what's happened now too with using that terminology of sex work is we see it being applied not just to the women in prostitution. So you see the term sex worker become so broad now that it encompasses pimps. Pimps could be considered sex workers. Wow. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that. I hadn't thought about that one, Sherry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's true. So, they, it's, so it's, and that's, um, you know, so it's, it's very uh, worrisome. And, and when we hear sex work, pimps, you know, become uh, businessmen, business owners. Johns become clients and customers. And so it just reframes this whole discussion um, and shuts down any critique of, of, uh, that, that feminists may have about really damaging industry. Um, can, can we just talk a little bit about the actual state in Canada of prostitution, Sherry? What does the law say? The law, it's been in the media uh, the past few years. There was a Supreme Court challenge. Yes, there was. Um, I think a lot of people were kind of thinking about prostitution. Um, and a lot of people that, that women, you know, that thought prostitution had nothing to do with them, I think we're beginning to, to, to kind of think about prostitution. And it's really important that... Um, we recognize that prostitution is a system that affects all of us to varying yes, degrees yes, as women mm-hmm. and as girls. Uh, you know, we've seen in the last few years the hypersexualization of, of girls, so younger and younger and younger, right? And the pressure on women to look younger and younger and younger is is so harmful to us. Um, and that's you know born out of out of the the sex industry, out of pornography, um, and and all of those um, harmful ideas that really get ingrained in men. Um, and and you know uh, kind of passed down right generation to generation this um, I, this very violent um, version of masculinity that we currently have in our culture so it's you know it's really important to, to recognize I, I I mean you're right that the majority of women I would say in prostitution aren't there because they love it you know they're they're there out of necessity um, because this you know the state has failed us. Um, 
you know, the men in our lives have failed us, you know, so I, I think the, the very small minority, and I think it's, it's kind of a, a, a unicorn, really, it's, there's not, there's so few women that are making a ton of money in this industry. We really do need to keep those two um, aspects together, and women need, you know, to, uh, we, we do need to, to keep those two together and recognize the system as a whole. The state in Canada right now, so we're in a, a situation where the Supreme Court ended up striking down the prostitution laws in Canada. Now we're in, we're in a situation where the, the government created new laws, new legislation surrounding prostitution. And so it's relatively new, it's less than a year old. And what this new legislation does is uh, it does some good things and it does some not so good things. So the good things that it does is it criminalizes the buying of sex, so the purchase of sex. And that's actually a really big deal um, that a country like Canada would, um, you know, by and large, uh, would just wholly criminalize the purchase of sex. Um, so that's a very positive step in the right direction. It criminal uh, pimping is criminalized. Uh, women and girls, um, and when I I mean all people in prostitution, but it's it's gendered obviously. So when I when I talk about prostitution, I say women and girls in prostitution are decriminalized, except for if they are uh, found prostituting in certain circumstances, such as in front of a daycare um, or a schoolyard. And so, unfortunately, that aspect of the leg legislation will affect, by and large, the women on the street, who are mostly Indigenous women and who are very poor, very poor women. So the most marginalized women could be affected by that aspect of the legislation. So that needs to be thrown out, um, gotten rid of. So the the legislation, um, unfortunately, falls short of the of the Nordic model, which is the model that we uh, think would would work the best and give women and girls the best chance. So the Nordic model consists of three three-pronged approach. So one prong is criminalizing the demand, so criminalizing the johns and the pimps, decriminalizing prostituted women and girls across the board. The second aspect of the Nordic model is really substantial comprehensive funding for both preventative and exiting services. So you're looking at money that goes into social housing, uh, increasing welfare rates, drug and alcohol treatment, um, childcare, access to education, all of these things that will help women get out of prostitution, but will also stop women Prevent and girls from entering yeah. in the first place. Um, and the third uh, aspect of the Nordic model is a, a, a very um, substantial public education campaign that works to educate the public about prostitution as a form of violence against women and girls. So, you know, we, we're, we're it was, it's a baby step. The new legislation is, we're shuffling along very slowly and in the right direction, but we're not quite there yet. It's a big, it's a big issue. There's lots more to learn. So I hope that people who are listening will uh, do their own research and uh, see, uh, look at other um, authors, other people, other women's work on this issue, um, and uh, educate themselves further. So we have a Facebook. You can search us there. Hopefully, we will have a, an actual website in the next few months. Okay. So that's the Indigenous Women Against the Sex. Uh, sex Industry. Okay, so thank you very much once again, Sherry Smiley, for coming in. I talked to Sheila Jeffries about sex work and its importance to the global economy, specifically about the use of women's bodies in strip clubs. Sheila, why did you decide to look at strip clubs as being harmful to women? I've had a long feminist career 
in which I have been involved in campaigning against the sex industry and understanding the sex industry in all of its forms to be harmful to women, against pornography and for the abolition of prostitution. I'm involved in the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women. But the reason why I've chosen in the last few years to concentrate a little on strip clubs is that strip clubs have been ignored, really, because what's happened in the last uh, 20 years or so is that strip clubs have been normalised and seen as simply entertainment, and there hasn't been any rigorous critique of them. In fact, many people don't seem to understand the role of strip clubs in the promotion of prostitution and how it leads to prostitution. Well, strip clubs were never taken seriously, were they? No, I think uh, stripping as a form of entertainment for men has been mocked a little bit. It's not, it, it, it's not seen as serious. But in fact, it is serious. If you look at Asian countries, for instance, you find that women dancing for men is a prelude to prostitution in all of them. And indeed, in many of those countries, women are not allowed to dance in other ways because it's considered to be lewd for women to dance. The only way in which they're supposed to dance is as an introduction to prostitution. The men choose them and use in prostitution the ones they have chosen. Now, that's very general across Asia. If we're talking about Japan and geishas, many other countries in Asia, that is the common practice, uh, Philippines and so on. Stripping is, in fact, very much connected with prostitution and always has been, but in the West and in countries like Britain and so on, it has been seen as somehow separate. Before the 1980s, strip was nonetheless seen as seedy, bit of a joke, but seedy and it took place in particular pubs where there might be stripping or in red light areas. It was not respectable. It wasn't a part of ordinary society. But in the 1980s, the strip club industry was normalized. Now, strip clubs mainly came from, in the States, they were set up by men who had run dirty movie theaters, and they diversified into setting up strip clubs. And the first one in the States is supposed to have been set up in 1987 that was a gentleman's club, so-called. The idea being that it wouldn't just be seedy and something that men in Dirty Max would go to, but that it would be respectable for the executives of corporations and such to attend and to do their business through. And of course, the name is very deliberate. Gentlemen's clubs have always been for men to exclude women, network between themselves and do their business with each other. And the strip clubs became the new venue in which that was possible. Women to be there were supposed to be naked and available to the men, and the men did the business through use of the women's bodies, which has been a common practice, but it's becoming more and more of a common practice. There's also the argument, isn't there, that this is artistic in some way? Unfortunately, even within feminism, there is a deliberate movement to try and make strip respectable. There are so-called feminist scholars who argue that stripping is empowering, a form indeed of artistic endeavour, a form of uh, artistic dancing that can allow women to express their sexuality. And this is commonly, commonly made. A, a lot of young women in women's studies and gender studies programmes in Western countries will receive this as pretty much a dogma. There will be very little criticism of stripping. Sheila Jeffries is a very well-known and very controversial feminist. She's very well-known in England and she also worked for many years in Australia. And she came to Ottawa to a women's conference, which is where I met her, and uh, she agreed to do an interview in a hotel room. What's your argument against stripping? 
I argue against those who would say that it is simply a form of empowerment in which women can express their agency, because this word agency is used a lot, that we need to look at not only what happens to women precisely within the clubs, but we need to look at the context in which these women are supposedly expressing their agency. Context or structure in which they're able to do what they do is crucial. So we need to understand stripping as a massive, abusive industry founded on misogyny, a patriarchal industry uh, in which women gain very little of the money um, that is circulating. I've looked at strip clubs, particularly through the, their strip magazines. The owners of the strip club industry set up special magazines where they give each other advice on how to fight legal suits and they do all of the news that's going on in the industry, new things they can do, and also attract women to stripping. There's Adult Video News, uh, which is American, which is mainly a pornography site, but also has lots of information about strip. And, because strip and pornography are pretty much part of the same industry now. The same owners and the same women are involved in the strip clubs as are in the pornography. So there's a great deal of information out there to tell us what actually goes on in strip clubs, although there's been extremely little, as I say, critical feminist research. The research that's been done has tended to be by women who are sort of PhD students and do stripping while they're doing their PhD and interview the men at the same time. So there hasn't been critical research. What we see when we look at the industry more generally is that strip clubs uh, like the pornography industry have a great deal of involvement of organized crime and sometimes I simply call stripping getting naked for organized crime and say to people how can that be empowering? I mean when you think about it getting naked is something that is imposed upon people to disempower them. When boys at public schools take the trousers off other boys they're disempowering them not empowering them. So we need to understand stripping as the way in which a whole class of people that is, women, is disempowered for the power of those who keep their clothes on. So the industry internationally a few years ago was estimated to be worth about $75 billion. So it's a big industry. In the U.S., it's reckoned there are about 300,000 women involved in stripping. Now, what women get in monetary reward for stripping can be almost nothing. If they can be in a club for hours and hours, and if they're not chosen, they will make nothing. But they still have to tip out the valets and the bouncers and other people within the club. They're treated as agents. They're not employees, so they get no wages. They get no benefits. So they can be in some of the sort of small-town clubs that are not tremendously profitable, getting extremely little reward. Otherwise, in clubs that are more profitable, they're, they're likely to get a bit more than the average wage of a woman from stripping. In terms of what happens in the clubs, well, there is very little research on precisely what happens. There's one a good piece of research by a woman who was in stripping who talks about the harms women suffer from having dead rats thrown at them, cigarettes stamped out on them. She explains how in clubs in the States, women stand against a wall and lift one leg so men can stick their fingers up their vaginas and they usually try to carry a cloth to try and make man's fingers slightly less dirty before they actually stick the fingers up them. Uh, lap dancing is of course very normal in the clubs and in lap dancing a woman wriggles naked on the lap of a, a man who ejaculates while she's doing that and the women find it very unpleasant to have to wriggle around in the semen of strange men. This lap dancing very generally takes place in private rooms and in the private rooms the men try and get away with as much as they possibly can and it's certainly the case that acts of prostitution or full forms of prostitution take place in these clubs. Where they do not, arrangements are made so that uh, men are able to meet the women outside the clubs. It, 
in Queensland in Australia. The clubs actually make the arrangements for the men to be able to take the women out of the clubs to use them sexually, which is exactly the same system as in the Philippines. So I don't know why we should see what's going on in Western societies as somehow um, you know, different and more respectable. In, uh, in Australia, in, in America, in the UK, businesses, executives, do their deals through strip clubs. In fact, it's been estimated that in London, 80% of finance executives do deals in strip clubs. They take the Saudi princes there and everybody else that they're arranging deals with. So they do deals whilst looking into the naked and shaved and probably bleached anus of a woman in a strip club. So they do their deals through the degradation and use of women. Now this is extremely normalized and one of the things that I'm interested in is the way in which that behavior of men is connected with the global financial crisis, of course, because it's exactly the same finance executives who took risks to create the meltdown of economies and all the very serious harms that have occurred for ordinary people as a result of that and their way of making deals was very much through the bodies of women. So other corporations and firms are involved in this as well. And there's you know, just ordinary car businesses and so on will use strip clubs as ways to reward their employees. Firms use strip clubs to do product launches. So the, the understanding is that women are completely not involved in this. So that women who are seeking advancement in the business or professional world are completely excluded. They can go to the clubs, feel deeply embarrassed and talk to the strippers whilst the men are roaring with laughter and having a good time and bonding through staring at women's anuses. Or they can refuse to go or they get, don't get told about it, in which case they lose out on a great deal of business and cannot possibly get promotion. So that the sex industry in the, in the form of strip clubs is a, a, an obstacle to the possibility of the equality of women. It creates a new glass ceiling for women. And if you look at the websites of the strip clubs, they offer gold cards. I always think of them, because I've been in a few uh, strip clubs, as, as be, having furniture a bit like the, uh, the business lounge at the airport. They're four businessmen. They have the sort of same leather armchair and hunting prints on the wall approach, uh, but naked women on all the tables. Uh, companies which are invited to have their meetings there will have um, women naked on the table at lunchtime, in the mid-afternoon and mid-morning break. And some of the strip clubs in Melbourne have got Doric columns to make them look tremendously respectable and just or even, even superior to an airport lounge. So... Business, men's organization of business has actually taken up the strip clubs and the sex industry as an important part of the way that it does business. What's the connection between the strip clubs and the trafficking of women? There is trafficking of women into debt bondage in strip clubs. That's been identified in Canada and in the US in particular. And in fact, in some countries, Canada was one of those, and Japan too, there were special visas for exotic dancers. Canada, a few years ago, had to stop that because feminists were pointing out that it was a form of trafficking. There were women being trafficked in from countries like Moldova, Eastern Europe, and, and other places into the strip clubs. Japan had a similar system, an exotic entertainer's visa, and I think that that's, um, that's been rescinded as well as a result of feminism efforts. So in those cases, and I'm sure there are other cases internationally, governments are directly involved in making the trade of women into the clubs happen. So there was nothing secret about it. Well, this is the use of our tax dollars. 
Absolutely, because states which encourage, legalize or tolerate the sex industry in the forms of pornography and stripping and so on, as I understand it, are pimp states. They are actually providing women for men's entertainment and abuse in order to get them on side, in order to get their votes. Patriarchal states are involved in instantiating sex industries specifically for their male citizens. The women are abused in those industries and the status of all other women is very much affected by the existence of those industries, but it is a practice of patriarchal states which fortunately now is being very much challenged and feminists intend to bring to an end. What's the role of the strip club in the general society? How does that affect the ordinary person? Strip clubs affect ordinary women in that they offer, according to the research that's been done on the men who go into those clubs, a form of compensation to the men for women's equality. There is research which shows that men who work in offices say that they're really fed up because their new boss is a woman. They can go to a strip club and they get all their old-fashioned, very brutal old-fashioned men's privileges, which is being able to have women basically performing as sex slaves in front of them. There's men who have rows with their wives, are able to go to the strip clubs and compensate themselves because they may have a woman who wants an equal relationship, but they're able to always undermine her. And in fact, there was an advertisement for a strip club in Texas, which shows precisely how this operates, the advertisement on television for the strip club said to the men, take your balls back. And in the advertisement, the man sort of forces the wife to give him the keys so he can open a cupboard and take his balls back and go to the strip clubs, right? It's a compensation to men. I call it the sex industry in, it, in many of its forms of the present as being the outsourcing of women's subordination. There may be some women who are gaining forms of equality in Western societies in particular, but men are able to get a compensation for that by outsourcing their subordination to other women in the sex industry, often other women from poor countries who are trafficked in or through sex tourism or the male order bride industry and so on. So the status of women and the possibility of women's equality is very much undermined. What should we as women be doing about this, Sheila? Feminists are only just beginning to get organised around strip clubs. The group Object in Britain has been very active because in the UK there was a situation where every corner pub was starting to turn itself into a strip club and there was no regulation of this. And they actually got a legal victory which said that councils could actually control whether the, the, the pubs were able to be strip clubs or not. I mean, the interesting thing about strip clubs is that they are legal, just about everywhere except Iceland. The wonderful new lesbian feminist socialist prime minister in Iceland a couple of years ago made strip clubs illegal, prohibited strip clubs, as well as penalising the buyers in prostitution. So that was a wonderful initiative. That's really the gold standard towards which we can aim. But strip clubs are under the radar. They function very much in the way that brothels do, although not exactly the same way, are in ordinary streets and they are entirely legal. And indeed they have advertising which demeans women on the streets. They mark out parts of cities as places where women cannot go, where you have a number of strip clubs together. It's dangerous because men mill about and are quite violent outside those strip clubs. The organised crime leads to shootings. We had a, a, a shooting in Melbourne a couple of years back where bikies are involved in providing the security and running through, uh, with organised crime, the strip clubs. And the, uh, the bikie was beating up a woman outside the strip club who was a stripper and two men came to her aid, 8.30 in the morning. 
They were shot and one of the men, a young solicitor with a family, died. There have also been other shootings outside the strip clubs. So as soon as you normalise the sex industry, you're putting onto the ordinary streets of the city very serious forms of abuse and, and organised crime. So areas of the cities are shut off from women. Uh, we as citizens lose our right to walk in certain areas because they're made over to men for their purposes. You were just listening to episode 8 of Older Women Live, the podcast. On this episode, you heard Cherry Smiley and Sheila Jeffries. Older Women Live is produced by me, Rosemary Wally. Older Women Live is a production of Aging, Communications and Technologies and CKUT 90.3 FM, both in Montreal, Canada. You can listen to more episodes by subscribing on iTunes or visiting our website at actproject.ca slash OWL.